Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, I'd like for you to find the book of 1 Corinthians. And when you find it, I'd love for you to find chapter 8 this morning as I begin a new sermon series with you as illustrated by that brief bumper entitled Freely Bound. It seems to be a contradiction to use the word freely and the word bound together. Yet freedom's a big deal. Boundaries are a big deal. In Christ, spiritual freedom is a huge deal. I mean, it is one of the pillars of the Christian faith. It's one of the things we celebrate. You so passionately sang just a few moments ago, hopefully from a place of being free in Christ. Spiritual freedom is longed for and celebrated throughout Scripture. Think about the psalmist who said it this way, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. That's why you need those praise chords. Boom, boom. Set me free. Jesus spoke about freedom in the book of John, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Four verses later, he says, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This was the answer to legalism in the New Testament. In fact, Paul talked about it quite often in places like Galatians. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. A little bit later in that same book, he says, For you are called to freedom, brothers, only. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In Romans, he says, For the one who has died has been set free from sin. A little bit later, Of course, he says this in 2 Corinthians, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This is not just Pauline theology. Peter said it this way, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So Jesus, the psalmist, Jesus, Paul, Peter, everybody's talking about Freedom in Christ. But what happens when our freedom in Christ comes into question about certain behaviors? I want you to think about the Christian life through this series in three levels. So if you were to sort of take what we do, what we believe in our behavior, and put them into three levels, it will help us learn how to balance Our lives, when our freedom and someone else's struggle seem to be in tension. So here are the three levels. Tier one or level one is doctrine. Tier two is beliefs. And tier three is behavior. Now I have to tell you, when you attempt to simplify it like this, this doesn't flow out perfectly in every single issue. But let me give you just some simple examples. So a doctrinal belief that Church at the Mill holds dear is that Christianity is defined exclusively as being people who place their faith only in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That's a doctrinal belief. And then if you were to press that, not only do we believe in Jesus, we believe he is the Son of God and fully God, the second person of the Trinity. And by the way, a doctrinal belief would be our view of God who exists as one. God is one. Yet he reveals himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Those are 
doctrinal beliefs. This afternoon, I'll teach the November edition of the new members class. And when I do, I'll take just a few minutes to review some basic doctrinal beliefs of our church. And I will say to those folks who are going through the membership process, if you join our church, you are saying you believe and affirm these doctrines. There's no room for wiggle room. I can love and interact with and be kind to and have a relationship with and be a friend to someone who does not agree with me on the doctrinal level, but they're not a brother or a sister in Christ. To be a brother or a sister in Christ is to hold these orthodox doctrines as truth. That's doctrine. Then we get to the level of beliefs. Now, obviously, doctrine is a belief, and what we believe forms our doctrine, but more specifically here, I'm talking about those secondary issues. We'll encounter one in a few weeks, uh, excuse me, into next year when we get into the later parts of 1 Corinthians and we deal with the issue of speaking in tongues. So, so obviously, I have a conviction about that. Our church has an understanding of that, and I'm going to fully explain that to you. But I have met many people who love the Lord Jesus who have differing views about the belief of what speaking in tongues looks like. That doesn't divide us as not being brothers and sisters in the Lord, but it is a difference, a difference of a secondary belief. And then there are issues that are really not at the core doctrinal or belief, but driven from doctrine through belief. They manifest themselves into behaviors. So Christians don't always agree on what behaviors are or are not permissible in the life of a Christian. Now, I'm not talking about sinful behaviors where the Bible is clear about an activity being sinful then we're clear. There's no negotiation. I'm talking about those areas that often communicators say the gray areas. It's not quite black and white, and Christians have navigated it in different ways. I just, real quick, this is not technical, but just to wrap your mind around this, I kind of made a list of the stuff Christians disagree about. How do you like that heading? Stuff Christians disagree about. I'm telling you, we are scholars here at Church at the Mill. Halloween. Vaccines and a pandemic response, our relationship to alcohol and or tobacco, tattoos, gambling, government, politics, and economics, secular entertainment and music, musical worship styles have split many churches over the last decade, proper dress for worship, head coverings for women. I've been to mission trips. I've preached in Baptist churches in Europe where all the women wear a head covering. Bible translations. I have some dear friends of mine who come out of the KJV-only tradition. If the king ain't on it, the king ain't in it. I'm not in that tradition, but I have some people who grew up in that. Some of you may or may not have grown up in that, but the first Bible you had was the King James Version. Church attendance, working on Sunday, or Sabbath principles. I have heard Christians lovingly and unlovingly disagree about all these, and this is just scratching the surface. Now, I don't have the ability in 30 or who we're kidding, 40 minutes to take every one of these issues and sort it out. Now, like all of you, I actually do have a strong conviction about all these issues. I, I can articulate that for you. And in a certain time, in a context, I think it's good to want to know what your pastor thinks and how your pastor navigates. This is why pastors are held to a higher standard because not only is their language on Sunday to be an example, but the life that they live. And so it does matter. And, and I think there's a place for that. 
But let's back up if we, if we could. Let's fly above the individual issues and let's ask the question, what do we do when we come across these? Because there's no one sermon that's going to solve every single dilemma. In fact, I think it's deeper than your specific reaction to individual situations and circumstances where you may come across a person, they give every evidence of being in a right relationship with Christ. They love the Lord, you love the Lord, and yet they're choosing to behave differently than you about a topic, and it causes a check in your spirit. And you say, well, am I wrong? Are they right? Or are they wrong, and am I right? Or is there a right that we have not located, and we're both wrong. Is it a matter that we ought to discuss? Is it a matter that in the name of freedom we just agree to disagree? What do we do? Well, there are certain places in the New Testament that become beautiful, wonderful, fully sufficient case studies. And 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is one of those. In fact, I would just tell you, that the whole principle of 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is to lead in your reaction with love. So when you get yourself in limbo about an issue, make sure you know how to love in limbo, which is what I would entitle this sermon, Loving in Limbo. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul does what he has continued to do. He takes time to address a question that has come to him. The question is rather simple, and at first glance, you may think, how does this relate to us? But you're going to see within just the first few seconds of us reading it, it relates very well to our lives. Corinth was not a place filled with atheists. Most Corinthians worshipped a number of different false gods. And one of the things that accompany false worship of false gods is idols. There were idols everywhere in the Greco-Roman world. People had idols in their homes. There were idols in temples. There were idols on street corners. And as is often the case, when humans worship anything, there is within us this deep desire to bring something to our God. Now, the good news is, our God said, I don't need your meat. I don't need your drink offerings. I don't need any of those things. Romans 12, 1, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. The one true living God wants our living lives for his living glory. That's his ask. That's what he wants. But in the ancient world, Oftentimes, in the ritualistic worship of these false gods and the idols that represented them, meat sacrifices would be offered. Animals would be purchased. They would be slaughtered. And a portion of the meat would be offered in sacrifice. But meat's valuable. Meat's real valuable. You been to the store lately? Meat's exceptionally valuable. And so, in the offering of the idols, I don't know if you've ever noticed this about idols, idols don't do anything. The meat would not be consumed. And so, there was a huge market in Corinth for the selling of portions of the meat that had been previously used in the worship of pagan idols. Now, Christians, they know the truth, but where they were disagreeing is, 
if we don't believe in the idol, can I have the ribeye? And there were some who were saying no and some who were saying yes. It is one of those beautiful examples of Christians coming with the same conviction of truth but a difference of how to operate in that truth. And with that in mind, take your Bibles and look with me in verse 1 of chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols. Now I've just explained that. I won't re-explain it. We know... That all of us possess knowledge. Notice the quotation mark there. Most scholars believe that Paul was throwing a little fire with fire. He's quoting one of the phrases that the Corinthians pridefully quoted. We know that all of us possess knowledge. And this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If you don't hear anything I'm going to say, hear this. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is really not about meat offered to idols. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is a perfect example of what goes wrong when we fail to recognize two truths. Number one, pride is often the problem in these issues. It's not the individual behavior. It's the pride around the behavior. And love is the solution. Pride is often the problem, and love is always the solution. Look at verse 1 again. Is that not what he says? Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. He's being somewhat facetious in that. This is the thing the Corinthian believers prided themselves in. If we go back to chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4, the problem was spiritual pride, and spiritual pride forms the seedbed for sin, the sexual sin we dealt with in the series on sexual sin in the church, always related first and foremost back to people's pride, their desire not to conform to God's will for their lives, and then they open themselves up to Pandora's box when it came to immorality. And so, pride is the problem. But notice what he says in contrast, that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. It puffs up. We strut. We strut spiritually. People who strut spiritually judge others sinfully. We puff ourselves up. But then notice what he says. But love builds up. See, pride is most concerned about me in the situation. Love steps into a situation and says, what's best for you? You cannot have both. In fact, most people think that the opposite of pride is humility. In one sense, that's true. But when it comes to behavior, the opposite of being prideful is being loving. It's walking into a situation where you may disagree with a brother or sister about an issue and ask the question, what do I need to do? to put this brother or this sister in the best possible position to honor the Lord in their life. Pride puffs up, but love builds up. So then that leads to a simple question as we walk through this chapter. I want to know more about this love. I got the pride down, you do too. <laughs> I don't have to work on that one. I want to know more about this love. Uh, how can I... Love people in limbo. 
what, what do I do when I encounter folks who disagree with me about something that I may be passionate about before I charge off and create an enemy or turn a brother into an enemy? How do I love? So then I have to ask the question, what is this love like? And I believe that's what he does for the rest of the chapter, and I'd like to show it to you. First, love that builds up never confuses knowledge about God with being known by God. All of you have biblical knowledge. I hope you do. I'm failing if you don't. All of you know stuff. Knowledge about God is a good thing as long as you keep it connected to you being in a right relationship with God. God did not come to save us that we would be scholars or students. He said, I've called you to be disciples. The relationship of a disciple is about the person they follow, which comes with knowledge, not simply the knowledge they possess. Many cults are built off knowledge. Think about the Church of Scientologists. Scientologists believe a lie which says that there's just certain knowledge that prepares your life for the highest joy. We know that God does not want us to be ignorant, but the most important thing about our faith is that we know Him. In fact, we come to know Him long before we come to know all about Him. The beauty of the Christian life is that I can come to know him at eight years old in April of 1986. That's when it happened for me. But then I spend the rest of my life coming to know more about him. But even in my growth of knowledge of him, it does not change the fact that I knew him as an eight-year-old boy. And there's something even better. As an eight-year-old boy, for me, for you, you may have that moment in your life. I hope all of you do. If you don't, I'd like for that to be today. But as an eight-year-old boy, certainly that was the moment I came to know the Lord. But the greater miracle is that he chose to know me. Which is exactly why Paul says in verse 2 these words. If anyone imagines that he knows something. You ever know that person? Notice how Paul says, you imagine that you know something. You think you know if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If you think you have all the answers, brother, sister, you do not have all the answers. I don't want to be around anybody that has all the answers. But then look at verse 3. But if anyone loves God, now this is the moment where there would be a part of me to go, okay, I know what's coming here. I can predict prophetically what he's going to say. If anyone loves God, well, then he really knows the Lord. That's not what he says. He says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. In other words, his or her identity is being known by God in Christ. And from that, knowledge flows. All the biblical truth that's available online. You know, I've never said anything to you in a sermon you can't Google. All the data, all the facts, all the dates, all the word studies, all the principles and the lists and the points that other people make, they don't alliterate them as cool as I do, but all of them, they're available to all people. There's no shortage of 
knowledge. But the catalyst, the fire of the Christian life, the energy comes from being in a right relationship with him, of being known by him. Now, let me apply that. Let's drop that into limbo. You encounter a situation where someone professes to be a Christian and they handle a gray area differently than you. You notice they're choosing to act differently than you, to speak differently than you, or to come to a different conclusion or conviction than you. If you're a reflective person, if you're an introspective person, you may go, hmm, there may even be a check in your spirit. Am I wrong about this? Are they wrong? In that moment, before you do anything else, start from a place of what's most important is what you want. Father, even as I evaluate this situation, keep me bound to my identity with you so that I don't try to define another person by how they relate to me or how I relate to them. You know, you don't have to win a single argument to go to heaven. And yet we have such a visceral, combative, adversarial spirit about us in our nation. And it carries over often into the church. People become more passionate about a particular position that is not doctrinal than they do being known by their heavenly father and operating as such. So first and foremost, this love never confuses knowledge about God with being known by God. Now I want to tell you something. There's another extreme. This love never compromises truth. I think this is so important because it's interesting that, that Paul does what he does in verse 4. So sequentially, I think I would have been drawn to write verse 7. We'll get there in a moment. But he doesn't. He pauses. Obviously, he's been asked by some folks. Some of those folks saying, I don't understand what the big deal is. I don't believe in those idols. I don't believe in those false gods. I just need a good deal on hamburger meat. I'm raising all these kids. And I need a good deal. And this meat's cheaper. It's available. It's here. And aren't I free in Christ? Others are saying, oh, no, 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 I, I used to worship that way. I, I was the one at that idol. I was at that temple. And I just, I mean, with a clear conscience, I, I just can't support in any way, shape, or form uh, anything that has to do with the worship of that deity. And this debate had risen to the point that they said, Paul, tell us what to do. Before Paul tells them what to do, he says, let me secure the truth. Look at verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know. Now, notice the contrast between what we know, this is positive, and all what you think you know, verses 1 and 2. We know that an idol has no real existence. You may notice a quotation mark in a modern translation. This, too, was probably a Corinthian slogan in the church. Idols have no real existence. And then he goes on. And that there is no God but one. And then verse 5 and 6 are just gifts to us theologically. If you love theology, you need to underline these verses. For although there may be so-called gods, little g in heaven and on earth, and indeed there are many gods, parentheses, and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things and through whom we 
exists. So in the discussion of idolatry, Paul says, let me remind you what we know to be true. There's nothing in those idols but the materials they were made, and there is no God that they're worshiping. Now, just to make sure you and I understand, there are clearly in Scripture two spiritual powers at work in our world. There is the Lord God who is sovereign over all things and who works on this earth through the power of his Holy Spirit. He also has messengers that he can use. The word messenger is translated angel in the Bible. Don't think wings and, and halos, uh, angels can appear like you and he, us. And we recognize that he has at his disposal angelic forces, an angelic army. So our God is fully supplied and fully equipped. He is sufficient in and of itself, and if he needs anything, he just speaks and it exists. And then, of course, there is the enemy, the devil, Satan, our adversary. And around him, of course, are fallen angels. The Bible designates these demons, if you will. And we know that right now he is called the prince of this world, which means Satan has limited but very powerful freedom in this world to operate under the sovereign hand of God. Now, that's a whole nother theological study. But there is a force of good and a force of evil, and there is a head at both of those. The Lord Jesus Christ risen, of course, leads his powers and manifests his glory in all things. He holds all things together, and then Satan. And so, even people misguided in the worship of a false god can be under demonic influence, and Satan will at times, in his purview, reward false worship. This is why there are people in false religions that can see spiritual things happen. He's a deceiver, and he has a measure, not full, but a measure of spiritual power to create the supernatural, and to have people attach their false religion with some form of spiritual power, even though they on the surface would say, no, 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 I don't worship Satan, or I don't worship demonic forces. The demonic forces don't need to be labeled. One of Satan's primary characteristics is he does not need you to know you're working on his team to be on his team. And so Paul is saying these idols possess nothing. Paul is saying there is only one God. Paul echoes back what we hear in John chapter 1. What does it say in John 1? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It reminds me of what Paul told the Colossian believers in Colossians chapter 1, talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I don't need an idol. I have a Savior. He came and lived. People touched him. His mother nursed him. His earthly father taught him. He ate and walked and talked and laughed and cried. And so there's no need for a relic. It's one of the reasons why inside of Protestantism, you won't find crucifixes in our places of worship. He's not on the cross. Don't put him there. You'll see an empty cross because the cross is empty. It is finished. There is no more suffering on the part of Christ. He may 
be brokenhearted over us and our sins. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, but he's not paying anymore. It is finished. It's accomplished. It's done. And so the cross is empty. The tomb is empty. The throne is full. And through his spirit, our hearts are full. I don't need a relic, a statue, an idol, or a symbol in order to connect with God. And this is what Paul is saying to the Colossian believers. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he finishes up by saying, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Paul says, before I even try to settle your debate, let's start from the fact that the love I'm talking about does not move off the truth. I'm not giving those idols a bit of credence, and I'm not going to suggest in any way that if you choose to abstain from eating the meat offered to them, that somehow validates the worship that's going in that direction. Now, there's something I have to say pastorally that's implied by the text but is not in this particular text. I think we live in a culture where people, in the name of love, compromise the truth for fear they're going to violate someone's freedom in Christ. This is not what's happening here. So, so if you just think about your life and you think about the topics of our culture and our debate, let me just make sure you understand that when I talk about limbo, I'm talking about those gray areas where Christians can lovingly disagree about. I'm not talking about black and white issues that have crept into liberal churches and progressive theology and become quote-unquote gray in the name of love. If it doesn't line up with the word, then we're not talking about a gray issue. We're talking about a black and white issue. So if you think about it personally, using the personal pronouns of your life, here's a simple list for clarity for you and for me. God has not left you in limbo about your truth. It's the Bible. He's not left you in limbo about your salvation. It's only the gospel. He's not left you in limbo about your identity. You're an image bearer of God, made in his image, and you were made in your mother's womb, male or female. He determines both. He's not left you in limbo about your sex life. It's a gift for marriage and marriage alone. He's not left you in limbo about your marriage. Your marriage is one man and one woman for life. See the previous series. He's not left you in limbo about your children. They are to be loved and raised and trained in the Lord. He and I, he, uh, the Lord has not left you or I in limbo about his church. We are to gather, grow, give, and go with the body of believers to fulfill his mission, to see his glory manifest in all nations and to make disciples of those whom he saves. He's not left you in limbo about your money. You're to work for it, not cheat others, not depend on some societal program or governmental program. You're to work for it if you're able to work. And then you're to provide for your family and give generously to causes that honor the Lord. And he hasn't left you in limbo about your neighbor. Anyone in your community, regardless of their age, their gender, their race, their lifestyle, or beliefs, is to be loved, prayed for, treated fairly, and if they don't know the Lord, they're to be witnessed to. So this is not a series to muddy the water. We're not in limbo about the stuff the world is in limbo about. But there are things that Christians encounter where they wonder, what is God's will in this specific moment? And Paul's about to show us the principles to navigate. This type of love never compromises truth. But finally and most importantly, this love, love that builds up, never places freedom in Christ above another's faith in Christ. We live in a my right society. People make up rights. 
that they think are in the Constitution and then demand that those rights be fulfilled. Don't you deny me my rights. Well, in the Christian life, we know that we have rights as children of God. But there is a big difference between demanding your liberty and being devoted to the love of your brothers and sisters. So after he's set the tone theologically, look what he does beginning in verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. Let me translate that. Not everybody who's saved is mature in their faith yet. Not everybody's short it all up. You say, well, can you be saved and not understand everything biblically? Absolutely. Children get saved. Folks with limited cognitive ability get saved. I've seen people get saved from really twisted backgrounds, and it takes years for them to unpack some of those secondary issues within the faith. I mean, think about the disciples. They spent three years with him and left at the cross thinking that it was over. Peter, before he's restored, said, boys, I'm going back fishing. Then he's restored, and he ends up giving his life to the Lord. So, yes, people can come to Christ, can truly be saved, and still be weak in their conscience and immature in their understanding. I don't want a church that's just full of mature Christians because that means we're not reaching anybody. I would like to know that the people who are following the Lord Jesus and are here for an extended period of time become mature in their faith. And I believe that the weekly preaching of God's word can corporately grow us into the image of Christ. But I think this is also the best environment for people who are weak and beaten down and struggling to come in and look to their left and look to their right and say, the strength she has, the consistency he has, the maturity she possesses, I want that in my life. And they look at you and they see your Bible open and they see your eyes open and they see your ears being attentive and they watch you live what you're hearing from here on out. And all of a sudden they look up and five years from now they don't even recognize the person they were when they got saved. This is a good thing. By the way, it's called discipleship. And and so, not everybody has that, which is why he says in verse 7, these words. However, not all possess his knowledge, but some through mere association with idols, eat food really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it And no better off if we do. So the eating of this meat, especially in the presence of weaker baby Christians, Christians who had spent their life devoted to a false God, Christians who had sacrificed the same meat on your table in months past to this false deity, was causing them to really struggle. And so Paul begins to unpack this principle that you lay your freedom down the moment your freedom causes someone in your circle of influence to struggle in their faith. You freely bound yourself to their level of maturity as they grow. That'd make a good sermon series. Freely bound. You freely bound yourself. Now, When we think about binding ourselves, it's important to recognize something about freedom. Remember I told you earlier, we typically have pride worked out. We're pretty good at that. When I think about my freedom, I put that uh, personal pronoun in front of it. My freedom. When I think about freedom in Christ, you know how I think about? Me. What I'm free to do. That's the natural human knee-jerk reaction. I don't think about your freedom. I think about my freedom. You say, well, that's because you're not in control of me. You're in control of you. Yeah, that may be true. 
I think it's also because in my selfishness, I tend to always think about me first. You do too. That's the most natural inclination of a human heart. So, so Paul says something here about this freedom. Freedom goes both ways. If I'm free to eat the meat, I'm also free not to eat it. In other words, if I'm free to do something in Christ, I'm also free not to do it. If you're going to make the big argument that there's nothing wrong with this meat, this meat has no spiritual value, it was never used to worship a real God, and so I can buy it and I can eat it. You can also make the argument that eating this meat is not going to make me any closer to the one true God because I didn't get close to him by offering sacrifices anyway. Which is exactly why when verse 8 comes, what does Paul say? Paul says these words. He says, food will not commend us to God. You're free to do it. You're free not to do it. But look at verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? In other words, you may be there at the temple court buying the food, having lunch, doesn't mean anything to you what's going on with this meat before you got it. But if a weaker brother sees you do it, and the act of being closer to that life he just left pulls him back in, you become his stumbling block. There are eight or nine reasons. I've written about it. Many of you have asked for the article. But there are eight or nine reasons why I don't consume alcohol. That's one of those gray areas in Christians' lives. But two of them that come to my mind most often is, I got children who need to know their mother and father can have a great time without alcohol. So when they're offered alcohol at an immature age at a party, and it will happen, there's another reason for them to say, if this is not in my mom and dad's life, and they have a wonderful time, and they laugh, and they're joyous, and they know how to unwind and relax without this. I can do the same thing. The other reason, of course, is that if I'm consuming one drink responsibly, and next to me is a gentleman consuming his ninth drink irresponsibly, unless he's loud, in the moment, we sure do look alike. Yet there is a difference that no one can see. And so Christians have to evaluate when I associate with something, am I putting myself in a position that might cause another brother or another sister to stumble? My position on alcohol might not be your position. I want to know that all of us think about our position and our relationship. Freedom goes both ways, and secondly, freedom doesn't flaunt. You know where I see this abused? It's when people assume they're being judged. Don't you tell me I can't do such and such. I'm saved. Oh, don't you quote that Old Testament to me. I'm fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled the law in me. Almost flaunting their freedom. That's not what Paul says here. Paul says any freedom I have in Christ stops the moment that freedom which may have no bearing on my relationship with the Lord, could cause another person in my sphere of influence to stumble. 
Now, there's something really interesting for those of you raised in a legalistic culture. Some of you raised in legalistic churches where it was moralism, it was behavioralism. In other words, you live right or you're going to hell. That was the motive. You come to church every week, pastor scratches you out of his body, pitches a fit, scares the hell out of you. You go try to live right, and then you come back. Literally. That was legalism. Now, the problem with legalism is not that those people don't live right. A lot of them do. It's motive. What is the motive of your morality? Because if you just attach it to being fearful, if you ever come, overcome that fear for you pull away, and how many people do you know raised in a legalistic world walked away from the Lord and walked away from church and say, I don't want any of that, and they live like the devil. And so, and so what you have to recognize is that our motive has to be from a place of being known by God and in a relationship with God and that we want to honor him. So this is not a text where any legalistic Christian who comes into our life and points his finger at us and judges us for something deserves credence. In fact, read the text in its context. Paul's not talking about people pointing their finger at other people. He's talking about you evaluating a weaker brother's walk or a weaker sister's walk and being willing to submit your freedom so that they may flourish. You give me a room full of Christians who come at it with that attitude, you'll always land under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, informed by the Word, at a place that builds the body up. And what builds us up? Verse 1, love. What puffs us up? Pride. And when you really want to navigate it well, always see the person the way Christ sees them. You see, this freedom, this freedom never wants to offend the one who sets us free. Notice what he does here in the last portion of this paragraph. He says in verse 11, And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother from whom Christ died. It's not that I don't want somebody to stumble so it's on my conscience. I don't want to ever cause another brother or sister to stumble because Jesus died for them. You know what I know about someone who Christ died for? They are valuable and loved. Look at verse 12. The sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you end up sinning against Christ. This is genius. It's profound. The sin's not the meat. The sin is you deciding in your heart that you're free to eat it regardless of how it affects someone else and you go forward in the name of freedom and you sin against the one who set you free because you forgot about your brother or your sister who may be struggling. Which is why he ends, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Notice Paul said he could eat it, but he wouldn't do it if it caused his brother to stumble. H.A. Ironside shared a great story of this from a church picnic. He's a theologian from generation past. He said a man named Muhammad had become a Christian by his first name. You can tell what he converted from. And a young lady came around handing out sandwiches at a picnic. Praise God for church picnics and baskets full of sandwiches. Amen. I used to love it when the ladies at the churches I grew up in would make a whole plate of those sandwiches. Cut the crust off. Cut them in half. I mean, they go down like Krispy Kreme donuts. You can just suck them down. How many do you have? I don't know how many are left. 
So this young lady came around, and she wanted to hand her brother in the Lord a sandwich. He said, what do you have? She said, all I got is ham. He said, do you have any beef, any roast beef? No, sir, it's all eaten, but I have some ham. He said, no, no, thank you. Now, this young woman respectfully said, now, Muhammad, she, she was a fellow church member. Muhammad, you know that in Christ you're free to eat any food. He said, oh, I know that, but I'm free to not eat it too. He said, I'm still trying to witness to my family. And every year when I go home to see my dad in the country I was born in, he's going to meet me at the door and he's going to say, have the infidels convinced you to eat the filthy meat of the pig? And if I say, yes, Father, he won't let me in the house. But if I say, no, Father, I have not eaten pork, he'll let me in and I can continue sharing the joy of what Christ means to me. So, young lady, this man said, I'm free to eat the ham sandwich, but I'm free not to eat it too. His family's salvation was far more valuable to him than exercising that freedom. Next time you come to an issue and you're in limbo, stop and love.